So hello and welcome to this latest episode of Beyond the Buy Button, a podcast series from DeliveryX that looks at how products become sellable, how they are distributed and returned or even resold. Today's episode takes us right to the start of the process and looks at the supply chain with a focus on its transparency and how increasingly retailers must have visibility of not only what's happening in their operation, but of the whole chain. I won't be covering this alone as I'm joined in the studio by Internet Retailing's Editor-in-Chief Ian Jindal. Say hello Ian. Hello Ian. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. We'll also be joined by the power of technology by Inoko's Marcus Linder and Provenance's Jesse Baker. They've both done some really interesting things in this space and I couldn't really do them justice so I'll let them try starting off with Marcus. Thank you very much for inviting me. Really excited to be a guest here. So my name is Markus Linder. I'm one of the co-founders and CEO of uh, Inoko. I started my career by founding my first startup. It's, it's a company called Suvu. It's meanwhile a global market leader for AI digital sales assistants, so a technology that's used by companies like Amazon, like Microsoft, Miele, and many, many others to help consumers choose the right products online. Uh, as CEO and co-founder, I kind of have been responsible for scaling up uh, the company. And after 13, 12, 13 super exciting and intense years, I decided to bring in a scale-up CEO, hand it over to him at the triple-digit growth rate, and then uh, basically enjoyed uh, to take a year off with my family. My family and I, we took a year off and we traveled through the Nordics. So we bought an RV camper van and then uh, kind of traveled through Norway and Sweden and Finland and uh, really had a lovely time there. But uh, that was also a very defining time for me because I learned a lot about the climate crisis, about the biodiversity crisis. Uh, you know, we were standing in front of those glaciers and kind of realized, wow, uh, things are really heading into the wrong direction here. That was also the time when my second son, Paul, was on his way. And I just kind of figured that, you know, it's not going into the right direction and uh, decided that with the next chapter of my life, I wanted to really do something that has a positive impact on the climate crisis, on the biodiversity crisis. Um, that that time I started getting active as an angel investor. So I, uh, since then I'm in investing in early stage startups that do crazy things like for example, creating uh, like food out of CO2, so converting CO2 into food, for example. On the other hand, I also decided to get active as an entrepreneur again with Inoko. So it's brilliant to hear that his own personal travels that got him thinking about the climate crisis. He himself has become a representative of how many consumers are now interested in sustainability and the products that they're buying. Mm, I think the... Uh... The challenge for retailers on the one hand and advocates of solving the climate challenge is making the issue and the solutions tangible. And so transparency, if you like, is the, the bit in the middle, uh, the enabler that allows you to connect your actions and decisions with their impact. And so, you know, it's great to hear Marcus's story. Uh, he's been in the industry for a very long time and it's also an interesting switch now from somebody who'd focused technology on selling more, selling better, to looking at the supply chain impact and transparency. 
And Jessie certainly also had an interesting journey. Um, she tells us about it's the fact that it comes from her own personal frustrations and that's how she set up Provenance, but she can actually tell us more. I started out my career in manufacturing engineering and supply chains, so got to see the reality of how products are created, the impact that they have on people and planet near and far. Um, did a bit of a career pivot into software design and development and then worked at the very end of the supply chain, so helping brands to market their products to shoppers. And then actually went to do a PhD in computer science, looking specifically at Web3, so blockchain technology, cryptocurrencies. And I was really interested in how they could impact society and enable more transparency. So help us to understand kind of the, the impact that we have as humans. So yeah, Provenance was a side project that turned into a bit of a full-time gig. And yeah, now we're a team of 25 people based just down the road in King's Cross, working with brands to help them be transparent on the impact of their products. Provenance really came out of my own personal frustration. I just wanted to know the impact that our products have on people and planet. And I thought it was unreasonable that that information was not accessible to me the end of the supply chain, the person that literally funds the entire thing. Like, how do I have no information on where this thing's come from and the impact that it has? And it's something that matters to me. But I'm a lazy shopper. I don't want to have to go and search that out through endless amounts of Googling and traveling in supply chains, which is what I did early on in my career. I think that information should be accessible to me right in my lazy e-commerce scrolling it should be accessible to me so I can make an informed decision. So I think it's that kind of disgruntled, unreasonable, <laughs> personal grudge. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's unreasonable to to call her, well, it's unreasonable to call herself lazy. You do just want that information right in front of you. I think so. I think behind every lazy person's happiness is a hardworking <laughs> person that does the work <laughs> to allow them to be lazy. But I think your jokes apart what what jesse puts a finger on is the fact that this data is either not available or it's opaque and you know the consumer has a limited amount of time in order to make decisions so if you think about uh, you know the weekly shop or going along an aisle in a grocery store then uh, even after hfss if you look at anything you buy then you've got the ingredients, the allergies, the fat, the salt, the healthiness. Is it organic? Is it fair trade? I mean, I'm surprised there's space left on the label. Now, if you're passionate about certain things, you know, feed your children well, or uh, you have dietary requirements yourself, you put in the time. But realistically, we all do that. You're looking at uh, outdoor clothing is another good one. If you want to buy because uh, winter, an insulated down jacket, then you now have to work out what does blue sign mean? Does that mean it's post-consumer recycled? Does it mean it's low impact? And then you have at least two or three different down standards. So even before you recycle something, and is it pre-consumer, post-consumer, waste reduction recycling, et cetera, et cetera, the, the cognitive overhead of not destroying the planet while buying something is enormous. And I think, you know, this is what Jesse's put a finger on, is that, uh, firstly, it has to change, but more importantly, that no one person owns the answer, but we all own bits of the answer. And it's those bits of the answer that then need to become really, really clear and digestible to the consumer. Mm -hmm. 
for one, a retailer to be able to shout about how sustainable they are, they need to be seen to be sustainable these days and to be transparent and clear. And that's where a company like Inoco comes in and Marcus can tell us a little bit more. With Inoco, we are building a powerful platform that enables grocery retailers and food and beverage brands to basically assess their products, their food and beverage products on impact dimensions such as climate, uh, such as animal welfare, social, nutrition. And then we support them or our software supports them in optimizing their own products, so making them more sustainable, as well as communicating the impact of these products to their consumers. So basically giving you a chance to take smarter choices or in that case, take more sustainable choices because you know that a certain product has a very high CO2 footprint or is not performing very well from an animal welfare perspective. As well as then really with our engagement capabilities, we empower our grocery retail customers to take you on a journey and to really uh, allow them to leverage content, nudging and gamification to really support you on your journey towards a more sustainable and healthier consumption. And this is in a nutshell, what makes us very unique is that we are not only able to assess um, their white label product where they might have, you know, rich data from, but we can also provide them with product impact estimates for the third party brand products. So where they do not necessarily know where the ingredients come from and what type of electricity was used to produce them. So here we uh, use so-called performance class E values, which are kind of realistic worst case assumptions to estimate the impact of those third party brand products. And then they can commun- They can use that data to obviously give you as a consumer a, a rough indication on how the product is performing. But for their own white label brand products and for those branded products where brands are willing to share more data, we can really accurately assess the product and let you as a consumer ultimately know how a product is impacting climate or animal welfare or social uh, issues, uh, nutrition and and so on, and thereby kind of empowering you to take better choices. So both Mm. these systems that we're talking about are empowering consumers to make better choices. But as we're retailer focused, we'll kind of bring it back what they have to do. And there's so many working parts with sustainability. Um, There's so Mm. much data that they have to understand, and that can't be an easy task. It's, It's not an easy task. It's also a challenge for who is responsible for it. So in a large retailer, whether the grocery, you'd have your buying team who are conducting assurance on the product. If you're making your own product, you've got your uh, your buyers or you know, your product development team, and they are looking at the individual ingredients. But they are capturing, we hope, the data of a long time in advance of going on sale. Where does it live? How is it marketed? How does it turn into information that is consistent Brand to brand. I think this is one of the things that Marcus touches on here, which is if if you're a multi-brand or multi-category retailer, then you could have one pioneering company that gives you 100% you know, good information, and then another pioneering company that gives you 100% information, but on different metrics or to different standards. And, you know, finding a way to harmonize across everything is important. But then I think what uh, Marcus has, has identified, which is really interesting, is where a retailer doesn't know, 
how can you make a sensible estimate that isn't going to get you into trouble, but is still helpful and consistent? And I think that's one of the the interesting aspects, the development of moving from 100% I know it and I can prove it to I think this is right, it's approximately right, and it's 100% useful. So I think these are the balances to be made. Do I say nothing because I'm worried about not being totally right uh, and wait for 100% or do I find something to be helpful along the journey? The word matrix there is really interesting because from Jesse's point of view, they use the term framework. But these companies are doing something very similar and we can hear from Jesse about that framework to give us a little bit more information. It's definitely a journey. Sustainability is so complex. I mean, it really is like our entire ecosystems and it's so networked and connected. And yeah, I think it's, it's, it is very difficult to distill to something simple. And I don't think that's necessarily a, a bad thing. Like the, the complexity means we are embracing all of the issues. You know, it isn't just about carbon, it's biodiversity, it's labour rights, it's the impact on communities. And so at Providence, what we've tried to do with the framework is essentially distill down the the key claims that brands are making, both at a brand level and at a product level. And essentially what we're trying to do is to to help brands make claims that are consistent. So wherever you see net zero, it means the same thing. But there's so many different ways that people are communicating on carbon and net zero can mean many things. It could just mean the HQ of the company is net zero. And when 90% of the impact lies in the supply chain, that's actually very misleading. Mm. But you don't want to, to, to just look at the HQ of the company. We need to have a net zero supply chain that's end to end. So, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely uh, particularly the, the carbon area is a, a topic that's, that's complex. And there's a lot of kind of greenwash and, and misleading information going on. Mm. I mean, I think, you know, what's uh, interesting here is that Jesse's looking at a framework upon which many people can put their data, whereas Marx is looking at a solution where he can bridge the gaps in the data. So I think that's, you know, two, not opposite, but complementary uh, approaches to it. And I, I do think that the point that Jesse makes around carbon is interesting. So if you take, let's say, a pack of four apples in your favourite supermarket, and you think, oh, I fancy an apple, you then realise you don't know when the British apple season is, because you get apples all year round. So you pick up the apples, it's February, where are they from? South Africa. So the question is, is it better to have air-freighted apples from South Africa super efficient, or to have them from 50 miles away in Kent, but done in a, you know, a less carbon efficient individual way with a diesel tractor chugging along the road. You know, other options are available. But for the carbon conscious consumer, it's not easy to distinguish between which is the best uh, for the environment. And secondly, you're balancing in two issues. One is global carbon and the other is localism, local purchase and so on. And so all of these things come together Without that transparency and consistency that uh, Jesse talks about, the consumer can't make the choices they want to make. And those apples are then going to be in some form of packaging, whether it's plastic or those little tray things. And <laughs> I don't know how to describe them. Those little trays that the apples sit nicely in. Um, that packaging is then going to have a carbon footprint of itself. And that's something the retailers 
it's out with their control. That's someone that they bring a third supplier into this, into this sort of discussion. And of course, part of the framework is that as a retailer, you would say to your suppliers, I require you to use, I don't know, waxed paper rather than biodegradable compostable plastics or something. So you have that as a specification within your remit. However, what is the data? You know, what is the carbon footprint of each of those? Uh, and then once I have that data, there's a compliance issue that says, well, is that film really compostable at home, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, the, it's the whole uh, thing about, you know, make a promise and verify. These are the you know, the assurance challenges behind transparency. And we'll just bring Marcus here. What what can retailers do to, to deal with all these complicated issues that are, are going on? Mm-hmm. First of all, retailers should set themselves target. Like more and more retailers are um, joining the SPTI initiative, Science-Based Targeting Initiative, where they commit to reduce their carbon emissions, you know, year over year towards zero. And they need to break those goals down onto how much do they want to reach with their white label brand products, how much do they want to reach with their third-party brand products, how much do they want to reach by really having a positive impact on their consumers uh, in terms of their uh, consumption behavior. They need to work with their suppliers, but this is a multi-year long-term change process that we empower them to basically get onto. But at the same time, they can really yield results and key benefits in the short term by starting simple, simply by assessing the products on the public data they already have today. And thereby, they're already achieving much more or doing already much more than what uh, a couple of retailers are doing today. Because what a couple of retailers are doing today is really to provide consumers with uh, average values. So, you know, they take category averages like what's the average CO2 footprint of a ready-made pizza with salami. And with our approach, they can go already much more narrow, much more accurate and um, get better results. But then step step by step, year over year, get more granular, get more detailed, really measure the improvements. So data, Mm. yet again, is king here, isn't it? If you're talking about apples or a pizza, it's the understanding of what's going on. Yeah, but it's also the the framework. So... You know, data needs to turn into information, and it's the structuring of that data uh, that leads that info. So what I really like about this is that approach where you can use their data to assess where you are, get a baseline, evaluate your action options. Uh, That's quite powerful of itself. So I, I do agree with him that it's part knowledge and getting yourself limber for this new framework of data, of measurement, that is new to a lot of us. As this episode is trying to focus on the, the supply chain, we, we're going to bring it right back to, to the products themselves. And, and Marcus can give us some more information about that. So the very large chunk of the emissions for the retailers really come from the products. So it's not what we as consumers have on top of mind, like how is it packaged, how is it transported, but it's really uh, 
where do the ingredients come from? Uh, how have they been transported? Not sorry, not how is, has it been transported, but how, how have they been produced? How much land was converted in that area where the ingredients come from? These are the key drivers. And retailers will only be able to really effectively reduce their emissions if they focus on their scope three emissions, because it's easy to switch to uh, you know green energy for their stores and to over time switch to electric uh, transportation. Those are the easy steps they obviously have to take and are taking at the moment. But here you rather quickly get to a point where you can't make pro can't make lots of progress anymore. So the big, big, big opportunity for retailers to decrease their emissions and to improve the overall impact of their product is really to look at the products. And to be able to do that, they need to understand which ingredients are involved, which production processes are involved, and really get hands-on with their suppliers to step-by-step improve the impact of um, these products. And this is what we basically support them with. And yeah, but it's a long journey, uh, which they, many of uh, many retailers are now becoming aware of that they need to start as quickly as possible. Because yeah, there's not, not a lot of time uh, left <laughs> to kind of reduce their emissions. So <laughs> very cheery thought to finish on. There's not a lot of time left. Yeah, it's very cheery. But also, one of the things you get from this is the the Russian doll nature of supply chain. So, uh, Kate, if you sold me something, well, the thing to remember is that a lot of retailers buy from other people. They don't own everything from farming the cotton through to manufacturing, etc. So we are depending on other people. So if it comes labelled as honest gov, organic cotton, <laughs> ready to be dyed, how do I know? And then they say, well, I got from this organic farmer. So, well, what about that farmer's labour practices or land management? So the more you look into it, the more and more we realise it's a connected web where you know the nature of production is that uh, you're taking from one area to create something else. Uh, and I think this is... Uh, you know, the challenge. And when we then look at something like provenance, which is more of a blockchain assurance framework, that gives us an opportunity to, as you delve in, at least have hooks and ways of getting that assurance and passing it on as you sell your half-made products to someone else. So there's supply. So again, if you compare, it's the, I will tell you what it is rolled up versus I will show you all the stages so you can check. You know, Jesse can definitely tell us more about having visibility of what the suppliers are doing as part of the whole journey. Supply chain transparency uh, is really complicated and there's quite a few different actors that are all playing their piece. So Provenance is, has a very specific role, which is that we collaborate with brands to help them be publicly transparent. But in order to do that, you need to have done an awful lot of work internally on mm. your supply chain. So traceability systems, life cycle assessments, looking at the carbon footprint of your products, as you said, like different policies and, and, and you know, worker voice technology in, in your factories. And you need to be a brand that is really taking kind of ownership and responsibility for, for your supply chain and, and know about your supply chain or at least be, begun to start to, to know about it. So, so that work kind of already needs to have started to happen for provenance to be useful. Our job is to come in and help really capitalise on the great work you're doing and get that information out there into the public in a way that has integrity. So 
can be trusted by shoppers. So really, we're, we're the kind of a, a sort of piece of the puzzle towards the, the end of a lot of work, actually. You, you mm. will have had to have, have laid quite a bit of groundwork. And we do help with brands to help them understand that groundwork so that they can make a plan. And, you know, the reality is transparency is a journey. You don't have to be fully and beautifully transparent end to end to get started. You know, we often are helping brands to open up just a little bit of information, some mm. key claims, distribute that through their different kind of retailing channels and then build on that over time. So kind of every year or even every quarter, making sure they've, they've got more things to be transparent on in a in a digital way. So, yeah, a lot of Provenance's work is is collaborating with different internal systems um, that might already exist or, or we help kind of introduce. And then a lot of what we're doing is distributing. So, you know, our, our platform provides um, all of the tools you need to get that information out publicly. So literally getting this onto your website, mm. getting this into retail e-commerce channels is is a lot of where Providence spends, spends its time. Mm. <laughs> Inspiring. Uh, what Jesse said, I agree with that. And I, I always love it when um, a digital thought leader and PhD says, well, it is a bit complicated. <laughs> you know, they mean it. I mean, listening to Jesse, the thing that um, you realise is that we're, in a stage of having to re-architect the business flows. So traditional retailers, let's optimise getting things and then make a list of SKUs and tell someone in marketing who will write nice words about it, add a picture. Then you give that data to the e-commerce people who will promote, sell it, then to operations who will you know, get it out there and maybe get it back. Compartmentalised, serial. Whereas what we've seen now with some of the technology changes in e-commerce is moving away from platform and more to things like, you know, composable API-based work where everything talks everything all the time. I think we'll be seeing this where the supply chain opens up and lives at every stage of the consumer's consideration and every stage of the organization's activities. And so you end up with this hyper-connected set of data and processes and assurance, which is a, a fundamental retooling of the way that retailers organise themselves with respect to their customers and their products. So that introduction of technology, the drive forward from consumer demand to see the whole supply chain, that's it's great that that's all coming to the retailers and, and they're adapting. But we're also going to see regulations brought mm. in, rules that they have to hit these targets. There is going to be enforcements, I imagine, coming in a very similar way to the transport industry has already said, OK, by 2030, we've got no new ICE vehicles on sale. This is something that's probably going to affect this industry in a very similar way. And Marcus can tell us a little bit more about the regulations. So obviously, the regulator is pushing. So we, for example, uh, expect the regulators to do something similar like what they did. I mean, just to give you some context, we are, the, the food and beverage industry or the food and, and beverage products that we consume each and every day are responsible for uh, 34% of the global carbon emissions. They are responsible for 70% of the land use, uh, sorry, of the biodiversity impact, so the loss of species, 70% for the loss of species on land. So our food choices have a huge, and the food production have a huge impact on our environment. So what regulators, they will have to do something about it and they're starting to do something about it. 
they're going into, you know, uh, mandatory uh, labeling. There are discussions about like sustainability labeling, which will come for sure over the course of the next years. But I personally actually expect that they will do something similar to the food and beverage industry, what they did to the car industry, which is basically setting specific year-over-year targets that retailers need to reduce the emissions per euro revenue year-over-year and else we'll have to pay fines. And the smart retailers out there are aware and are ahead of regulation and are trying to really already, you know, solve those problems now rather than having to deal with them on a very short notice and potentially facing the big issues. So the regulators are a big driver here. Mm-hmm. That's quite a bleak view. Uh. <laughs> We've learned that Marcus isn't the cheeriest person. <laughs> um, time is short and retailers will be fined. Yes, but I think um, you know, behind the complaint about regulation is when you talk to retailers, they say, fine, just bring it on quickly and clearly. So the only thing worse than regulation is not knowing about regulation. <laughs> so so long as it applies to all your competitors and that everybody's equally burdened and so on, Let's get it over with, and then it's it's invisible. Same with you know, if you look back to uh, food labeling standards, they're now invisible and part of the way we we do business. So I think he's right to say it's changing. I'm surprised at his view about fines if you don't have percentage reductions per euro. But again, I, I might not uh, have thought of that, but you can see its analogy with carbon pricing, etc. Et so who knows? Maybe we should all be uh, worried <laughs> in advance. He, he works in this industry day in, day out, so he probably has a very realistic view. And we're sitting back going, oh, it'll be fine. But without these, with these rules coming, there are going to be retailers and companies that are on the front foot. There's always those people driving it forward from the front anyway, um, whether it's responding to change or just because they're innovative as a company. Jesse, are you seeing that change? Are you witnessing that with people that you work with? When I first started Provenance, and I was talking about transparency, some people thought I was talking about see-through products, like you know, like literally like products made of glass. <laughs> you know, like they didn't they didn't they had, I didn't have a clue of what I was talking about. Like no no idea. And that's that's changed. It couldn't have changed. It's done a complete 180. I think now brands recognize it's inevitable. Glass box brands are the future. Like you know, and it's so not, glass box brands. Yeah, so brands that are totally see through. Like oh, their right. employee, their employees are nice, but nice talking choice. about what's way. going on. You know, like and and we're seeing that so much. Like every employee has a voice in the public media domain. So you know, brands have to be authentic to what they're putting out there. And increasingly, if they're not, employees are piping up and, and telling you what's going on. And so yeah, brands are realizing that's happening and that's accelerating. And so they're getting on the front foot being open. And, you know, I mean, we've just seen it play out this year. I mean, so many brands are kind of talking about what they're doing from a sustainability point of view, but also talking about it in a negative way. So saying they've screwed up, like, you know, being honest, particularly the kind of fast growth D2C brands that are kind of dominating internet retailing at the moment, they really are fessing up and saying, look, we're not doing enough, but Mm. this is where we're going. And I think they are gaining the trust of consumers by having that kind of approach. But it, 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 it's it's all a journey. Like it's changed hugely over the past few years. And but yeah, there's still a long way to go. And there's still a lot of brands that are very used to the kind of yeah the Mad Men era replied behind the billboard. Like this is what we are. Like don't talk about what we really are. But I think mm. that's dying. Mm. I mean, I hope it's dying. 
when, got to be. You know, you'd like to think that the arc of progress is to more, you know, purposeful, authentic retailers and products and a more savvy, discerning, empowered consumer. So there's nothing there other than hoping it's going to come true. And again, it is this data that's verifiable, easy to consume, and therefore allow you to make the choices that as a consumer, fundamentally, you pay to be able to make. We could probably dedicate a whole episode to greenwashing by itself. I don't think we've got time. No, we could. And, to, um, you know, we, cover, we cover quite a lot of that in the sustainability report. Yeah. So um, that's something I would look at. And you know, again, one of the things there, we were talking about regulation, is because the regulations are at an early stage and enforcement isn't entirely clear. So it's often held uh, you know, by the advertising authorities rather than, say, criminally or trading standards. It's actually quite hard to work out who's enforcing what against whom, why, where and how. So again, uh, I think that just goes back to the more defined and understood uh, requirements are, the easier compliance is. So we've got enforcement, we've got consumer demand. There's so many reasons why retailers are having to be very clear about their whole supply chain to, to be transparent about their sustainability. But Marcus actually thinks there could be a successful business element to this. There, there could be something else driving it. And this is also, last but not least, something which has a huge uh, potential from a financial perspective. So, for example, one of our partners is McKinsey. And um, McKinsey is actually estimating that those retailers who go ahead and who really lead the way in this uh, sustainable transformation, have the opportunity to increase their, their profits by up to 50% through different uh, measures. And uh, we really see us as a key pillar and as a key platform that kind of allows grocery retailers to make progress there and to really move uh, into that direction much quicker than they could do without that and uh, that also offers a huge opportunity for them from a from a commercial perspective because every consumer who knows more about the sustainability aspects of food is a customer who will very likely purchase more organic products more vegan products and if you look into most european retailers you will see that they usually have a very strong footprint with their own white label products in that space so Every consumer who is more becoming more conscious about their choices is automatically a customer who moves away from third-party brand products who are on average not that sustainable towards those sustainable white-label brand products. So it's also a huge opportunity for retailers because they obviously have a significantly higher margin on those sustainable white label products. It also helps them to attract those sustainability conscious consumers uh, so they can really increase their share of wallet uh, at those consumers, but also attract new ones. Because obviously, if retailer A gives you the opportunity to learn more about the impact of your choices and retailer B doesn't, you're more likely, if you're interested in that, to buy from retailer A than from retailer B. I think that counts as positivity for marketing. <laughs> a huge opportunity for retailers. I'm going to just end the podcast on that because we've got a happy ending from 
I think so. Good and news from Marcus. It's a well-deserved happy ending too. <laughs> there is a whole series of really tidy tie-ups like that if you do want to listen to the rest of the Beyond the Five Button podcast. We've got episodes on packaging, circular economy, there's a conversation about staff, there is a chat about how frustrating returns are. These can all be found on deliveryx.net, on Spotify and on Apple, Apple podcasts. podcasts. Indeed. But for now, though, a massive thank you to Marcus, a massive thank you to Jesse, and in the studio, Ian, thank you very much. Thank you. But that's it. Thank you for listening. I'm Katie Searles. <laughs> <laughs>